Uh, we have the best Valentine in the world that we're going to hear about today, and that's God, of course. God and his amazing love. So this is the place to be for Valentine's Day for sure. Um, with that, I'm super excited. You can open up to John chapter 9 in your Bibles, in your phones if you have it, and uh, we're going to get started. So you've heard it said, right, seeing is believing, but Jesus says something actually kind of unique. He says something a little bit different. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, and that's in John's gospel. See, seeing is not always a guarantee that you will believe, and we're going to see that today. (laughs) Jesus seems to imply that the fundamental difference between a believer in him and one who doesn't um, isn't the ability to see the facts clearly, but the ability of the heart to receive and be honest with the truth, especially when it's a truth we don't particularly like to hear. It seems to me that Jesus would flip this phrasing then, seeing is believing to believing is truly seeing. Where we're going today is we must believe and act on the truth God has given or we become darkened in our spiritual vision. We have to believe, we have to act and receive on what God has given or we become darkened in our spiritual vision. I got three points for us today. Um, One, God's overriding purpose is to display his redemption in our suffering and brokenness. Number two, every obstacle in this life is an opportunity for us to grow in spiritual insight or become blinded by the light. Number three, Jesus has proven once and for all that his purpose is for our healing and redemption in the cross and the resurrection. All right, you ready? Buckle up. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So John chapter 9 verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world." After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. So Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and he sees this man that's born blind. Now, verse 8 is going to tell us that this man was a beggar. So I want you to envision this man's predicament for a moment. Obviously, his parents couldn't really afford to take care of him. He wasn't, they didn't have the benefits of our modern Western society, our our democratic republic that we live in with all the safety nets that we had. And it it wasn't that he had bad parents. They probably were just very poor. So every day, this man sat beside a dusty road outside the temple precincts, um, begging for money who would go up to the temple to worship God. And he would see them every day going up to worship God joyfully and happily as he sat there by a dusty road. Envision this person for a moment. This is the person you see at the border crossing with the withered legs and the wheelchair and the cup in his hand. 
This is the leper, if you've ever been to India. Oh, go. This is the leper sitting outside the temple in India. This is maybe even the disabled person you saw last week when you're getting off that freeway exit right there. This is that man. And I don't know about you, but their situation is almost too heartbreaking for me to be able to even process. I don't know why on a Sunday, too. I leave church, and I'm all excited and thankful and happy, and then I leave, and I, and I see that person. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. I don't even know how to process this right now. This is that man. And the disciples see Jesus' eyes fixed on this man, and so they take advantage of this opportunity to ask all those why questions. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sorry, my computer's having problems. <laughs> Let's click. There we go. Never mind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, the disciples immediately understand that this is not God's perfect will and intention, but looming in their minds somewhere is the thought that this person must have done something wrong to deserve this. Who sinned, they asked. They rightfully attribute it to sin, to the byproduct of a broken, sinful world, but they wrongfully attribute it to a specific sin that this man or his parents must have done. And Jesus' reply shows that this simplistic one-to-one -one correlation is not always right and helpful. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, Jesus completely denies their entire framework. See, simplistic answers to one's unfortunate predicament are unhelpful. This life as we know it is a very complex ecosystem. The reason for one's misfortunes, sufferings, or tragic circumstances cannot always correlate to a simplistic one-to-one -one cause to effect such as one person's sin or the sin of their family. Now, undoubtedly, sometimes our sin or the sin of our ancestors does play into the situation, right? I... I I'm working at a group home. I see that a lot. If you look around in our society, we see that. Sometimes the sin of our, of our parents, the sins of our ancestors, or our own sin affect us. And Jesus even went over this in John chapter 5, actually. It's a very unique chapter. It's a similar chapter where there's a disabled man by the pool of uh, Bethsaida, I think it is. And Jesus tells this man, after he heals him, go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. But at other times, like this story, it's completely irrelevant. Bad things just happen. See, we must remember that we have a real enemy who is not flesh and blood. And this enemy is seeking to oppress people. And he does so through this weapon of sin with its self-degenerating properties that are needed through entire ancestries, that are needed through entire institutions, that are needed through even the fabric of this world as we know it. 
So sometimes we can pinpoint a specific cause and other times what we would just call a freak accident or a very unfortunate set of circumstances occurs because we live in a fallen world with fallen people around us, including ourselves. See, ever since our forefathers and mothers succumbed to the Satan's temptation to assert their own governance over God's, we've all at one time or another indulged in the fruit and introduced rottenness and decadence into this beautiful but very fragile ecosystem called life. Tragedies occur every day around us and even to us. But although sin and a corrupt world form this nasty concoction with Satan as their overlord who came to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus came that we may have life. Jesus came for the specific purpose of redeeming what was lost. I love the simplicity of that purpose, right? With such a messy and complex answer that we, we just talked about, I think that's why Jesus, uh, exa- he, he kind of reframes it and he says, um, let's refocus not on the answer, but let's refocus on what I'm going to do through it. See, his disciples asked, what's the cause of this man's blindness? But cause and effect only lead to karma. Jesus said that such a simplistic explanation is entirely inadequate explanation of reality. There is real injustice. There is real wrong. There is real suffering that we don't deserve. Look at Job. Look at Joseph. Look at the apostles who suffered unjustly. And you may not even have to look that far. Just look into your own life to the things that have happened and that you've endured. So Jesus completely reframes the discussion. They're asking why. Jesus says that's complicated. It's not always helpful. The more important question to ask is what I've promised to do. They ask about cause and effect. Get this. Jesus said, despite cause and effect, I have an overriding purpose. I have an overriding purpose to take your situation and make something good out of it. See, if we want to talk about purpose at all, sometimes you read this text and it kind of looks like, um, you know, he was born blind so that, like he had to be born in order for this. That, that's, that, by the way, that the Greek does not have to read that way. Let me just say that right now. It's not really that way. But if we're going to talk about purpose at all, it's God's overriding purpose. See, Satan has a purpose to steal, kill, and destroy. God has an overriding purpose to take that mess and turn it in to our good. God's overriding purpose is to display his work of redemption in our brokenness and suffering. But I want you to see something. Jesus saw this person. Jesus saw this person. Jesus saw the pain of this man. Jesus saw the shame he carried. How all his life he carried the shame of this blindness. How he must have struggled with the question, with the thought that God must not love him. It must be his fault he's enduring this suffering. It's just a result of his karma. I want you to know, just like Jesus saw that man, Jesus sees you too. 
He knows what you've been through. He knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. He knows your sorrows. He knows the abuse. He knows the shame. He knows the suffering. And he sees you and he cares. I hope you get that this Valentine's Day. See, God did not will the bad in your life, but he has willed to turn it around for the good. The promise of God's overriding purpose stands firm. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. See, God is in the restoring. God is in the renewing. God is in the recreating business. And he's promised to put that work on display in our lives if we let him. In fact, that's what this disgusting act of Jesus spitting and, the, you know, making some muss, like, ugh, and anointing the man's eyes with it. That's what this is all about. It echoes Genesis, right? The creation story where God took a, a lump of clay and formed and created humanity. And right here, God is taking some clay from his own spit and reforming, recreating, and making something new from this man's brokenness. Some of us, my friends, some of us will receive miraculous healing like this blind man. But for many of us, what has happened will not always go away that easy. There are consequences for our actions, and there are excruciatingly painful consequences for the actions of others that have been done to us. The question I want to leave us with today is will we hold on to his promise and surrender to his redeeming love or will we close up and harden off? Now, this is actually a very important point to this chapter. Uh, Verse five begins to allude to it where Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See, what Jesus says here might seem out of place, but it actually provides the lens for which we're supposed to see this chapter, right? The healing is finished by verse 7. There's another 34 verses in this chapter that betray where the heart of this passage lies. See, there are two responses to the light Jesus sheds on us. One receives and responds appropriately. Their eyes open wider and wider to the wonder of Jesus. This is that blind man's journey. We're gonna trace that. And we realize that his journey is not entirely different from our own. See, God initiated a work in our life and maybe his was a little more miraculous on the outside, but on the inside, it's nonetheless miraculous. God has initiated a work in all of our lives. And although he can see now physically, his spiritual vision is still a little blurry. It's still a little blurry. But by the end of his journey, not only does he see with his physical eyes, but he sees with his spiritual eyes, and they're completely opened, and he sees Jesus face to face, and he falls down, and he worships him. That's one response. And the other response is an unwillingness to act in good faith upon the message we've received. They progressively become blinded, as it were, by the light. So 
He returns from the pool of Siloam. His neighbors ask him in verse 10, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. See, obviously, get this, he hasn't really formulated his own view of who Jesus is yet. I think it's so ironic in the gospel that emphasizes the deity of Christ more than any of the other gospels. He has, uh, he has the guy saying, a man they call Jesus. He has no, he does, has no clue who this guy is, and he's just a man, right? Well, let's look at the next scene. His neighbors are bringing the guy to, re- to the religious leaders, um, to see what they can make, make sense of it, because after all, this healing occurred on the Sabbath, and that's contrary to their uh, legal tradition. So um, they ask him how he was healed. He relays his story, and then some of the Pharisees say in verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And this creates a division between the Pharisees, because some of the other ones are saying, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So in verse 17, they look to the guy, they turned again to the blind man, and they say, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the man replied, he's a prophet. See this? He's a little bit of stronger conviction starting to emerge, and he begins to meditate on the implications of what has been done to him and what that means for who this man is. Well, course, the Pharisees are still so unwilling to just accept the miracle, because if they, if they do that, then they have to completely change their thoughts on this man. So they're still unwilling. So what do they go? They go do, and they go interrogate his parents. So let's bring his parents in and interrogate him. So in verse 19, they arrive, and we pick up the story there. They ask, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it he can now see? They answer, we we know this is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this, get this, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who'd been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man's a sinner. Dang. You feel the heat there? You feel the opposition there? Anyone who's becoming sympathetic to Jesus' Messiahship is going to get kicked out of the synagogue. Now, that's pretty big and probably would lead to them being some form of social outcast. So his parents are like, look, the whole neighborhood knows. Everybody knows. I don't need to give my testimony whether, you know, what happened. He's of age. Ask him himself. He'll speak for himself. Talk about opposition. Not only that, but hear their tone. Give glory to God by telling the truth, son. We know this man's a sinner. Like, whoo. You can feel the pressure to conform. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to receive it. See, in our journey, there's going to be pressure. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be sufferings. There's going to be opposition to receive 
and believe the light that God has given us. The opposition to our faith comes in many shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's legitimate persecution. Many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, China, India are experiencing that today. They're faced with even more than ostracism, but the loss of their life. Let's remember them in our prayers. Sometimes opposition comes in the form of a pressure to conform to the camp or to compromise. And other times, it comes in the form of internal doubts and temptations that we have. See, we experience sufferings. We experience hardships. And the question of why God becomes very, very personal. Nevertheless, even through these obstacles, we see God's good purpose. His purpose is to take everything meant for our harm in this broken world and turn it around for our good. His light shines even brighter through our sufferings, allowing us to see Jesus clearer and making our faith stronger. Like this man, we must receive what has been revealed to us. We must fall back on our testimony. Listen to what he says in the last few scenes here. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that's been revealed to me. That I'm going to hold on to. I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, Well, what did he do to you? How did you open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become this man's disciples too? I love this guy. One writer actually says he becomes the most attractive uh, model for a Christian in in the gospel of John. He's just, I love his snarkiness. You know, he's so funny. They hurled insults at him, though. And they said, you're this fellow's disciple, but we're disciples of Moses, We know God spoke to Moses, but after this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. In fact, in the entire Old Testament, there's not one healing of a blind man in the Old Testament. But it was prophesied that when the Messiah would come, he would open the eyes of the blind. That's why more miracles, uh, more accounts of Jesus' healings in the New Testament are uh, healings of blind people than any other miracle he does in the New Testament. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, he says. And to this they reply, you're steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. See, they revert. They revert back to that simplistic understanding of God that the disciples first had when they came and asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And that's what they're saying. You're steeped in sin. You, uh, that's why you were born blind. You or your parents, that's exactly why. They're reverting back to that simplistic understanding. But Jesus heard in verse 35, 
heard they had thrown him out, and he went and found him. I love that. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now get this. Jesus is actually upping the ante here by saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's used very sparsingly in the Gospel of John. One of my professors actually said he, he believes that this title, the Son of Man, is one of the, the greatest title that conveys Jesus' deity out of anything um, even the Son of God. John uses Son of God often. That's one of his favorite. But Son of Man comes specifically from Daniel chapter 7. It was one of Jesus' favorite references to himself. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7 where this one like a Son of Man, like a man, comes to God's throne and God gives this person all the pe- He gives him a kingdom and he gives him all the peoples to worship this person. God allows another man to be worshiped. And so Jesus upping the ante here, he says, do you believe in the son of man? Listen to this guy though. He's so ready. He says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Wow, through this man's journeys of ups and downs and obstacles and breakthroughs, he finally comes to the place where he fully and completely sees the reality of Christ. See, this is one of the plural works, Jesus said, that he would display in that very beginning. This is one of them. And in fact, this is the chief work that the story's been leading to the whole time. He sees Jesus for who he is. He's God who loves us. So we see in this story a physical blindness and healing that it becomes a picture of, uh, of what we see on the spiritual level in our hearts. We see this clearly in the conclusion Verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now you claim you can see your guilt remains. See, the Pharisees, they, they understand that Jesus is using this blindness as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. The problem is they've effectively become blind. Notice how in the beginning when they ask the man for his story, right, they say, what do you have to say about him? There's this division. They're like, wait, how can, how can a sinner do these miracles? There's division. There's, they're, they're, the light has shined, and they're saying, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? They're pondering it. But as they go along through the story, somewhere they've decided to reject the light Jesus has offered them, and they reverted back to that simplistic perspective of who God is. So they ask, what, are we blind to? And Jesus responds in typical fashion with one heck of a riddle. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See, rather than just throwing out the conversation stopper, right? Yes! He gives him a brain teaser. 
He's a, this mercy here. It gives them a brain teaser to get them thinking about this longer. Maybe they'll have some more time to receive the light that's been given to them. So he gives them a brain teaser. He says, actually, actually, you're not blind. Not in the way I mentioned in verse 39. Because if you were, you would be like this man, this blind man who his eyes are now opened. So you're obviously not blind like that. If you were blind like he was, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. This man couldn't be faulted for the sin of rejecting me. Remember in the very beginning, he's like, a man they called Jesus. Like, I have no idea who he is. He couldn't be faulted for rejecting Jesus. He had no idea who Jesus was. But he says, the problem is you claim you can see. Notice he doesn't actually say they can see. You claim your eyes are opened, yet you're not worshiping me like this guy is. Thus, your guilt does remain because you've rejected me. See, every obstacle, every situation, every opposition is an opportunity for us to grow in spiritual insight or become blinded by the light. As we start to land the plane here, just give me a few minutes, we're going to land this plane. This blind man, from this blind man, we see a parallel to all humanity. See, we're all born blind. We're all born blind. And we're really not guilty for that. We are all the conception of fallen parents in a fallen world. Brokenness is in our DNA from birth. We're not born Christian. We have to make a decision for Christ. That's not the issue, though. The issue is not that we're born blind. That's what Jesus said he came for. The issue is that we sometimes reject the light. We claim we don't need the light because we already see well enough without it. But this is a scary thing because everything in life Every opposition, every obstacle is an opportunity for us to grow in spiritual insight or become blinded by the light. So we must hold to the light and let Jesus rule over our lives. We must continue to believe, to hold on to our our testimony and act upon what has already been revealed to us. Jesus says something very interesting at the end of this book, and I alluded to it in the very beginning. In a story that we well know uh, of Thomas, often called Doubting Thomas, right? At the end of this gospel, Thomas was uh, missing for one of Jesus' resurrection appearances. And the disciples came and said, we saw him. We saw him. He's, He's alive. He rose from the dead. And Thomas said, I won't believe until I see And this is where it comes from that famous passage where Jesus reveals himself finally and he says, put your hands in my scars, put your hands in my wounds. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. But Jesus says something very interesting, he says. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. This is nothing new, right? In fact, he said something pretty crazier already in, in uh, John chapter four. He said, unless people see signs and miracles, you will never 
believe. He said that in John chapter four, but what comes next is, is, is crazy. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. How do you go from unless to blessed? How do you go from unless you see, you'll never believe, to blessed are those who believe and have not seen? See, a seismic shift has occurred at this point in the gospel, and it's something we still feel today, the aftershock of it. 2,000 years later, the climactic work of God, the climactic work of God was put on display for all time through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here, God has given his final testament. God has shown enough light to open up the eyes of anyone who would look to him for all time. Jesus has proven once and for all that his purpose is for our healing and redemption through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the God of the universe is not indifferent to our plight. Instead, he entered it with us. God was born as a human like us. He worked a blue-collar job he struggled with his hands to provide for his family to make ends meet. He was betrayed by one closest to him with a kiss. He knows how that feels. He was deserted by his friends. He knows how that feels. He was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. He bore our sufferings and was crucified on the cross. I want you to know something. The cross stands as the symbol for how much he utterly condemns the sin and the evil that has happened to us. It was the greatest injustice that ever occurred and he took it, he bore it. And yet through the resurrection, he turned it around for the greatest good that ever occurred. The resurrection of Jesus speaks the final word over our life. The resurrection proves that no matter what happens, God works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, no suffering no sin, not even your own, nor death won't be redeemed and turned around for your very good. Church, I want to encourage you this morning. We have been given a very unique opportunity this side of heaven. We've been given the choice to believe. I want you to be encouraged that your faith is very precious to God. I never walked with Jesus. I never saw his resurrection like the disciples. And oftentimes I think my faith is so inferior. But you know what faith Jesus says is blessed? It's ours who haven't seen and have yet believed. This faith is truly precious to him.
Where's your heart today? Are you receiving and acting upon what God has revealed, what God, the work he's already initiated in your life? Are you believing and receiving that light that he's done? Or are you hardening up and shying away? As I end here, I, I was able to speak with uh, Josh Bloodgood recently and hear about the faith, his faith journey with his son. Uh, if you don't know the Bloodgoods, they're an amazing family. They can't be with us today because um, they have a son, a wonderful little son named Gideon, who was born with Charger's system, or Charger's syndrome, sorry. He was born blind. He was born deaf and a whole litany of other things, and he can't be here because he's vulnerable to getting sick. But in the course of our conversation, he looked at me and he said, I used to think Gideon was blind. I realized that he wasn't blind. I was blind. And he went on to describe how God had used Gideon in his life as a wonderful gift to open up his eyes to all of the majesty that God is. My friends, some of us will receive miraculous healings and breakthroughs. Some of us, through our wounds and scars, we still bear, will shine the glory of God through these jars of clay for our very different and special needs, friends. They might just be the works of God to open up the eyes of the blind. We're going to enter a time of worship and communion, so let's prepare our hearts.